All right, Psalm 137. Psalm 137 this morning. Before I read it as a text, give you a little bit of background. Make sure I get everything all plugged in, wired up, and turned on here. <clears throat> give you a little bit of background. I think it's important because I don't want to read this. I want you to get kind of the full weight of this understanding before we get in and read uh, the, the psalm. I think this is one of the last psalms that was written um, according to Reese's chronological Bible that I, I, I refer to quite a bit. Uh, he places it 550 B.C., right in the middle of the Babylonian captivity. and There may be 10 or 12 written maybe about this time or after. It really, if you want to fit it in your Bible, between Daniel 7 and 8, somewhere in that period is when this was probably written. Don't know who wrote it. Uh, there's some... There's some old documents that say it was David. It definitely wasn't David. And some say Jeremiah. It doesn't really appear to be Jeremiah. Most people don't take those very serious. But whoever wrote it gives us a very vivid picture of the, the Jews and their heart and their mind while they were captives in Babylon. If you'll recall, the Babylon's the ones that came in. They brought down the kingdom of Judah. They dominated the Jews, conquered their armies, controlled the throne, plundered the riches. On five separate occasions, if you study out the history, they came and they took captives back to Babylon with them. Usually the best and the brightest they actually kind of left the poor in the land. They, but guys like Daniel and his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, always make point to know their Jewish names. Uh, but he takes them back, uh, they were taken back to Babylon as captives. The Jews lost their freedom, their land, their temple, their way of life. Now they're captives in Babylon. In that foreign land, they're gathering, their hearts broken with the memories of the past that's still very fresh. That is the setting for this psalm. So when we read Psalm 137, think about those captives in a foreign land longing for home. Psalm 137. By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down. Yea, we wept when we remembered Zion. We hanged our harps upon the willows in the midst thereof. For there, they, uh, for there they that carried us away captive required of us a song. They that wasted us required us of, uh, of us mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a strange land? If I forget thee, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget her cunning. If I do not remember thee, let my tongue cleave to the roof of my mouth. If I prefer not Jerusalem above my chief joy, remember, O Lord, the children of Eden in the day of Jerusalem, who said, Raise it, raise it, even to the foundation thereof. O daughter of Babylon, who art to be destroyed, happy shall he be that rewardeth thee as thou hast served us. Happy shall he be that taketh and dasheth thy little ones against the stones. It's a little graphic there. We'll talk about that in a moment. The psalm is one of the most unique in, the, in all the psalms. All 150 of them, this one really just stands apart. It, um, I think it's one of the most authentic and human that you'll find. It doesn't teach like Psalm 1. It doesn't comfort like Psalm 23. It doesn't prophesy like Psalm 22. It doesn't guide us uh, in spiritual lessons like Psalm 51. What it does is express human emotion in some of the most moving language that you can find. There's the Jews. They're captive in a foreign land. They recall their past glory, the blessings from God. 
They cannot find it in themselves to sing the songs of praise, which once would have just flowed from them. They're in that place, in the mood that they're in. They, they can't find the praise. They open their mouths, and it's not joyous or beautiful words that flow. Someone joked on this. They said they can't sing, but what is this? It's a song. So evidently they were singing, but it was not joyous. They open their mouths. What comes out? It's bitterness against their enemies. It's an expectation that God will avenge them. And by the way, the last part of that, yes, it's a little graphic. It's, uh, it's what's called an imprecatory psalm or prayer. And uh, this is you see these a few times in the Bible. And it's where they're praying, God, judge somebody. And um, one of my favorites is Psalm 58.6. It says, break their teeth, O God, in their mouth. I just, it's, I don't know why I just love that. It just, it's something about it. Some people say Christians shouldn't pray like that, and you know, you're right. We probably shouldn't. Um, we could go to Romans chapter 12. Paul said, Recompense to no man, evil for evil, five things off would go on. You know, you're not supposed to do this. Let God do the judging, not, not us. Uh, but um, I can tell you, if we're honest for a minute, that may not be how we're supposed to pray. That's a goal for us to get to. We still fall short sometimes, and uh, sometimes we do pray like Psalm 137. By the way, I think God has that in there because some part of what Psalms is is guiding us and showing us how to how how it's acceptable, how to express ourselves to God. And I think God wants us to communicate honestly with Him. And I'm convinced true prayer is an honest prayer. He knows what we're praying. We can say, oh God, I surrender my all to you. And he says, yeah, right, I know what you're doing. I know what you're holding on to. He sees through whatever dishonesty, whatever front we may put up in front of us. When we pray honestly, he can respond and work out the rough spots in our hearts. If there be hatred in there, I'd rather let God work it out of me in the prayer closet and then for it to come bursting out when I'm tempted to sin. Oh, and by the way, that language in, in, in chapter 9, uh, yeah, it's graphic, it's terrible. It's also a quotation of Isaiah 13, 16. God had prophesied that that was going to happen to the Babylonians, so they're kind of reminding God about what he, what he promised, okay? So just, just FYI, that's not the message, but uh, felt like I ought to address that. For the message, I want you to note these things. First, that the people are in a mournful, dejected state. They're unable to express praise or joy. The people have no desire to play their harps uh, that they've so often used in their private worship like David or in the, the temple services. They, it's funny, they don't even have a desire to play the blues. They, they, they just have no desire to play at all. They've taken their harps and they've hung them, it says, on the willow trees, which they say grew all along the banks of the rivers there in Babylon. Well, if they weren't going to play those harps, why did they even have them? Why did they, well, they either had to carry them from Jerusalem or once they got settled in Babylon, they had to go buy them or make new ones. There's some trouble involved. Why do they have these harps? Why didn't they just break them? Why didn't they sell them? Why didn't they just throw them in the river just to be done with them? Why hang them on the trees? I just, I got to thinking about that. And the solution seems to me is very simple. Even though they did not feel like playing them at the present time. They did plan on playing them in the future. They could not find their singing voice then, but they knew one day the songs would flow again. They had hope through faith 
that they would use those harps again, that they would sing again. I'll show you something to kind of strengthen this idea. We often treat the book of Psalms as just a, a random collection of 150 poems, songs, chapters. Like, oh, somebody just found 150 of these, shuffled them together, and threw them, threw them in there. But there is a structure to the book of Psalms. Whoever compiled these, and I, I think it was Ezra personally, I don't know if I can prove that for history, but I like to think it was Ezra, did not place them haphazardly. There is a purpose and a meaning behind the organization of the Psalms. The 150 Psalms, as we have them in one book, we also turn to the book of Psalms, are in the Hebrew text, are actually divided into five books. Some study Bibles will have this. I know the old Schofields do. My, uh, my, my, my Bible I use is an Oxford uh, printing. It does not have the, those marked. I actually went back and made little notes um, on these right, right there, right before 107. I put a little mark in the, in the margin to know where these are at. Book 1 is Psalm 1 through 41. Book 2 is Psalm 42 through 72. Book 3 is Psalm 73 through 89. Book 4 is Psalm 90 through 106. Psalm 5 is, or, or Book 5 is Psalm 107 to 150. Yeah, I can give those to you later if you're really interested. If they're not in there, if you can look it all up, all that's online and stuff too. There's also, by the way, those five books have parallels to the five books of Moses. It's not an accident that there's five books. Each of those five books have an opening psalm that sets a theme or a tone that will be developed. So I don't have time to get into all that, and also I'm really just now digging in and learning about this, but about the, the meaning and the structure and the purpose behind how the psalms are organized. But there's some really neat things. You'll find there's some smaller sections inside here. Psalm 1 is the tuning fork that sets the, sets the pitch for the whole book. It talks about the two paths of before man. You can walk in the way of the ungodly or you can walk in the way of, of, of God and righteousness. And it lays that out before you in Psalm 1. The two paths there. I think Psalm 2 forms a pair with it. Psalm 2 um, it continues that theme, shows us the end results of following those two paths from Psalm 1. Psalm 22, 23, and 24 uh, form kind of a trilogy of, of messianic psalms, of prophecy, uh, showing you what Christ would do. Psalm 22 has Christ as the suffering Savior. Prophecies, direct prophecies to the cross, the suffering there. Psalm 23, Christ is the good shepherd there, his tender care for us. Psalm 24, Christ is the king of glory. So there's a picture there of the work of Christ in that trilogy of psalms. Psalm 146 through 150, are, are the great Hallel, the, the praise psalms. They all start, praise ye the Lord, and they were grouped together. The Jews would sing these as a group. Psalm 120 through so 134 are called the songs of degrees. These are a group of songs that the Jews would sing when they were traveling to uh, Jerusalem on their, their, their pilgrimages. They, these were special songs they designated to sing during those times. And there's other examples. Those are some pretty high-level ones. And so I was studying one, Psalm 137. Psalm 137 is so unique. I got to wondering, does it have a purpose in its placement? And I think 
that there is something there if you were to look at the surrounding psalms. Psalm 134 closes out the Song of Degrees section I mentioned. Psalm 135, if you, if you turn back and look at it, is a, is a psalm of praise. Uh, it, it talks about the greatness of God to Israel. Praise ye the Lord. Praise ye the name of the Lord. Praise Him, O ye servants of the Lord. And, and you, you go on down there. and um, oh, We'll see here. Towards the end, verse 19. Bless the Lord, O house of Israel. Bless the Lord, O house of Aaron. Bless the Lord, O house of Levi. Ye that fear the Lord, bless the Lord. Blessed be the Lord out of Zion, which dwelt at Jerusalem. Praise ye the Lord. A lot of praise of God through His workings with Israel. Psalm 130, uh, so that's Psalm 135. Psalm 136 continues the theme of praise. This time, it's we're giving thanks to God. We're praising God. And this is one of the unique little psalms. It's got this recurring refrain. Every verse ends with the refrain, For His mercy endureth forever. Some people think that this was probably sung uh, responsively, and the leader would sing the first part of the verse, and then the, the chorus, the crowd, the congregation, would repeat the For the mercy endureth forever, kind of a call and response kind of deal when it was sung. It's pretty neat. So it continues that theme of praise, of thanksgiving, glorifying God, and it also kind of gets in, talks a little bit about the history of Israel in there a little bit too. Then you get Psalm 137. Whoa, talk about a right turn out of nowhere here. <laughs> we're suddenly right turn left field. We're, in left, we're, we're out in left field all of a sudden here. Got my turn mixed up there. Suddenly we're, we're out somewhere else. Well, what happened to the praise? Psalm 137 contrasts those. It, it, but it asks a question. How can I praise God in the midst of terrible circumstances? It's like he's saying, I can't see that forever enduring mercy that we just sang about in the previous psalm. I, I can't see it. I can't feel it. I'm, I'm captive in the land of Babylon. I don't want to play my harp. I don't want to sing praises. We've gone from the mountain peaks of praise to the valley of sorrow. <laughs> know how that feels? I think we all do. But aren't you glad that uh, the valleys of Psalm 23, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, not a place I stay, I, I go through there. Aren't you glad on the other side of the valley there's a mountain? That's the definition of a valley, high, low, high. We get through the valley, there's another high point. Look at Psalm 138. You know what we find? The mountain on the other side of the valley. It's another song of praise. Now I want to show you something, and you can say, well, you're digging too much into this. Maybe I am. I'm guilty of that sometimes. But I find a lot of parallels between Psalm 137 and 138. was actually written a lot earlier. It was written by David. But there's a parallel in themes to these that matches up. I want to show this to you. If you'll fall, try to follow along with me here. In the valley, by the way, he talked about those by the rivers of Babylon. Where are the rivers? In the valley. Continue the theme on there. In the valley, the praise is stopped up. Psalm 137, 1 and 2. By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down. We wept when we remembered Zion. We hanged our harps on the willows in the midst thereof. But on the mountain, the praises are public. Psalm 138, verse 1. I will praise thee with my whole heart before the gods. I think that's referring to all the heathen gods and idols. Out in the midst of the world, amongst those who don't agree with me or know my God. I will sing praise unto thee. 
in the valley there was no strength within us. Psalm 137, 3 and 4. For there they carried us away captives, uh, required of us a song. They that wasted us required of us mirth, saying, Sing us the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a strange land? There's no strength, no, no desire to go on. But on the mountain we have a refuge, we have strength. 138, 2 and 3. I will worship toward the holy temple and praise thy name and thy loving kindness for thy truth, for thou hast magnified thy word above all thy name. In the day when I cried, thou answerest me and strengthenest me with strength in my soul. In the valley, I worry about my own failures. By the way, in hard times, we'll get a little self-focused in there, a little inwardly focused. Psalm 137, 5 and 6. If I forget thee, I, I forget thee. O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget her. I want my hand just to forget how to work. If I do not remember thee, let my tongue cleave to the roof of my mouth. I don't want to say another word. If I prefer not Jerusalem above my chief joy. What an I, I, I in there. On the mountain, I proclaim the greatness of God. It's separate. Instead of focusing myself, now I'm seeing the greatness of God. Verses 4 and 5 of 138. All the kings of the earth shall praise, praise thee, O Lord, when they hear the words of thy mouth. Yea, they shall sing, not me, they. They shall sing in the ways of the Lord, for great is the glory of the Lord. Big difference from me to him. In the valley, we worry about our enemies and the problems they cause. Psalm 137.7 Remember, O Lord, the children of Edom in the day of Jerusalem who said, raise it, raise it, even to the foundation thereof. The, the, you go back over in the Kings of Chronicles and the history books, and Edom, the kind of um, rivals there, rival kingdom there up to the side there, long history, of course, with the Jews, antagonistic and such. But uh, they kind of stood by, and they celebrated when Jerusalem fell. They even says they went in and looted some of the stuff after ba Babylon came and, and, and tore it all down. But they're celebrating, they're cheerleaders on the sidelines while Babylon is defeating the Jews. They're worried about the enemies. But on the mountain, we humble ourselves before His greatness. Though the Lord be high, I'm not worried about my enemies. I'm not looking around me, I'm looking up high. Though the Lord be high, yet hath He respect unto the lowly, but the proud He knoweth afar off. Looking up, we're humbling ourselves. Big difference. In the valley, we seek for judgment against our enemies. Psalm 137, 8 and 9, O daughter Babylon, who art to be destroyed, happy shall he be that rewardeth thee as thou hast served us, and you're going to get what you deserve, Babylon. Happy shall he be that taketh and dashes thy little ones against the stones. We're going to annihilate your kingdom. On the mountain, we don't necessarily seek the judgment against our enemies. We seek our deliverance by the mighty hand of God. I'm looking, God, I want something bad to happen to them. I, I want God to move. Psalm 138, 7 and 8. Though I walk in the midst of trouble, thou wilt revive me. Thou shalt stretch forth thine hand against the wrath of mine enemies. Talking about enemies again there. And thy hand shall save me. There's a big difference between saying, God, crush them and God, save me. A big difference there. The Lord will perfect that which concerneth me. Thy mercy, O Lord, endureth forever. Forsake not the works of thine own hands. Profound difference between 137 and 138. One is a valley, the other a mountain. One is human weakness, the other is divine strength. One is self-focused, one is God-focused. What I'm trying to say is this. 
Sometimes in life we find ourselves in Psalm 137. By the way, God never promised it would be smooth sailing. Hard times come, storms come. We all go through dark and hard and pressing times. Don't lose faith in those hard times. Just because you do feel down now does not mean that joy will not return. Just because you weep now does not mean that laughter will not return. Just because you're overwhelmed now doesn't mean that you will never overcome. Don't break your heart when you don't feel like singing. There will be a day that you will sing again. Don't break your heart. Stand strong in the day of adversity. Don't break your heart. Trust in God's goodness and greatness. Don't break your heart. Just set it aside for the moment. Psalm 30, verse 5. Weeping may endure for a night. Weeping's in the night, but what comes in the morning? But joy cometh in the morning. Don't break your heart. I know that valleys like Psalm 137 come. I'm honestly, I get scared sometimes. A lot of the, the American modern Christianity that goes around, you hear a lot of the health, wealth kind of stuff. It kind of scares me that there's not a whole lot that you hear about. I'm going to prepare somebody for hard times. Right, I think we need to be strengthened. You need to put up food for winter. You've got to be ready when the hard times come, when the droughts come in our life. These hard times, these valleys, they're part of human life thanks to the brokenness caused by sin. You cannot escape them. But it is, it's not wrong to be in the midst of the valley. It's not. That's, that's life. Hard times come. But it is wrong to settle there. So many times people just like being miserable. It's so funny to me. People like being miserable. <laughs> people enjoy being miserable. And they'll settle down right there and say, well, I give up. I'm just going to break my heart, throw it in the river. I'm never going to be happy again. Um, joy comes in the morning. On the other side of the valley, there's another mountain. We'll get through this. Don't settle in the valley. Second, know that there is always, always hope. Carrie, if you want to go ahead and come, I'm almost done. Know that there is always, always hope. Whatever the hardship, whatever the illness, whatever the situation, nothing is beyond God's ability to work to His glory and our good. Even in the midst, you think, my goodness, the nation of Israel, they've been conquered. Their temple destroyed. They've been carried away in a foreign land. You know what? That's the halfway point. That was about 35 years into a seven-year captivity. We know the rest of the story, as Paul Harvey would say. We know the rest. They get to go back. The temple that was destroyed, they get to build a new one. The walls that were destroyed, Nehemiah's going to build some new ones. Maybe it doesn't have the glory of it, but they get to go back. And you know what they do when they go back? They're singing songs again. The joy returns. Hope should be in God and not ourselves. Far the words to the old song, and I thought they were oh so fitting on this thought. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. When darkness veils His lovely face, I rest on His unchanging grace. In every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. His oath, His covenant, His blood support me in the whelming flood. When all around my soul gives way, 
He then is all my hope and stay. On Christ, the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. That's where our hope is. When the hard times come, when the storms rage against us, we think there is no hope. There is always hope when your feet are planted on the rock. You can always look up and know that God is moving, that God is working. And last, you can't make it in this life without Christ. I don't know how folks make it without Him. To get through the troubles and the trials without the hope, without the comfort, without the joy, without the peace that knows that my God is in control. And whatever the worst that happens to me down here, the worst thing that happens to me is I get to go to heaven. That's the worst that's going to happen. You can't make it in this life without Christ, but you really cannot make it in eternity without Him either. The storms of life we face down here, the hardest things we'll ever face are in our short little span of a life down here. Isn't that a blessing to know? But there will come a day that the weeping will be no more, the tears, the pain, the suffering the parting of loved ones, all that will be done. I almost preached on that this morning. All that's going to be done away. We'll be with Him forevermore in that place that knows no parting, no care, no crying, no sorrow. But the key is having Him. Having Him. Not just to walk beside us in this life, but to carry us over death's tide. To know Christ. To know Him is what it's all about. Can't make it without Him. In this life or the next, Christ is the King. Don't try either without Him. Owen, what number there? Good, good to see Him back at work there. Number 85 in the Heavenly Highways. If you want to sing along with the invitation song, we'll stand and have a short time of invitation this morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, good to see Owen back over there feeling a little bit better. And Lord, just... Uh, this message really burdened my heart looking at this psalm. been bouncing around in my brain here for a few weeks. And Lord, to look at that and Lord, to identify with it so much. All the, that, that, the troubles, the trials, and the, the relate to how they feel in Psalm 137. But to know that the psalm before, the psalm after, the praise is still there. That the hard times come, they pass. Lord, that you're in control. Lord, that you're working all things. Lord, to have that faith, to have that perspective, to know that though I may not feel the joy or have the songs of praise now, Lord, that they will return. To hold on in hope and faith in your care and in your power and your trust. Lord, strengthen us against the, against the things that we face, the troubles, the trials, the storms of this life. Let us hold tightly to you. And Lord, most importantly, not just for this life, but for the next, trusting in you and you alone for salvation, Lord, that the whole world may know to the missionaries, to the preaching of the gospel, Lord, to the folks even at the Pregnancy Resource Center sharing that timeless message of the need for salvation. All things else fade in the priority of knowing you as our Savior. Thank you for this message this morning. Just burn it into our hearts, I pray in our holy name. Amen.